I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica and I'm always excited about episodes but this one I'm even more excited about than usual because we have a man who was a former colleague of mine uh, but is also a bit of an inspiration because he is doing some of the things that I think we all wish we could do. Um, So welcome to the podcast Lee Turner, a former British diplomat who served in Russia and was our man in Ukraine and Austria and is now writing novels and I can't wait to hear about them. Welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I love your format of uh, that I have to drink whiskey while I'm talking to you. This is this is a real hardship, but uh, I'm, I'm game. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just get the whiskey part of this out of the way so we can have the, the sort of conversation one does over whiskey? So what are you drinking at your end? Yeah, at my end, I, I have some famous grouse here. Now, this is a blended whiskey, which is very old-fashioned. Um, you know, nobody drinks blended whiskey these days. We're all being persuaded by the companies to buy expensive ancient single malts. But uh, famous grouse was good enough for Margaret Thatcher. It was her favorite whiskey, and I started drinking it back in the 70s. And I like it with a bit of ice and water. That's that's a perfect drink for me. Excellent. Now, uh, at my end, as always, I like to pair my whiskey with my guest, and I was trying to work out the best way into this one. And I decided, because it's sort of the unofficial – well, it's the whiskey that was in all of the James Bond books um, was the Macallan. Now, in some of the movies, they've been sponsored by all sorts of people, but um, the one that was in the original Ian Fleming books is the Macallan. And given we're going to be talking about the Foreign Office and thrillers Super. and all that Perfect. stuff, it feels appropriate. So I've got myself a, a Macallan 18. So cheers, Lee. Nice to see you Yes, Good to see you. See you. So let's start with... I'll just, I'll just interrupt you there mm. for a second, actually. Um you mentioned James Bond, and I am a big fan of the Macallan. I'm also a big fan of um, Vesper Martinis, as are drunk, and the recipe is described by James Bond himself in Casino Royale, the very first James Bond book. So next time you interview me, we can have one of those. Absolutely. And I think I think everyone in the British Foreign Office knows this, but I'm sure Americans don't know this, but when they make the James Bond movies, in the way that, and we're going to be talking a bit about the crossover between the entertainment world mm-hmm. and the world of uh diplomacy but actually there are people who are part of the british foreign office and other bits of it who are involved in the james bond movies in terms of some consulting and they always do private screenings of james bond movies with the part of the foreign office that the james bond movies are about um, which which i don't know which part of the foreign office you're talking about of course but uh i do know that uh we've had receptions like that at uh, we had one at the embassy in kiev when i was there when they launched spectre one of the worst james bond movies ever but uh <laughs> still we watched it and um i think 
any opportunity to associate us ourselves with those great values that they have in the James Bond movies. You know, they're trying to get themselves into the 21st century now, and we we enjoy all of that. Absolutely. So, um, you are the two, three, fourth uh, British diplomat we've had on this podcast. But I don't mm. want to talk about diplomacy and diplomacy in the time of COVID, which is what I've talked to the others about. I want to talk to you about your your new life, as it yeah. were. Um, you write you write books, and you've got one out at the moment. So, can you just tell us a little bit about the book that was published recently? But the bit that's really interesting is. How does a man whose job it is to serve his nation around the world start writing these books? I think uh, they say everybody's got a book in them, and in most cases, that's where it should stay. And uh, <laughs> I've, I've been very lucky in that I've written a, a whole host of books, and my most recent is called Palladium. Palladium. And Palladium is a thriller, an international thriller set in Istanbul. And it's based around an archaeology professor, who's a woman, who digs up uh, something in the foundations of a new shopping centre. There's a great race against time to dig dig up these excavations before they start pouring the concrete. And as soon as she finds it, whatever it is, she can't really get a good look at it. Terrorist attack and kill everybody else on the site except for her, kidnap her and take this object with them. And then... Her former lover, who is actually a British former spy, except he's been uh, he's been thrown out of MI6 for gross misconduct in Moscow, um, in a previous novel. In fact, he has to find her, and the problem is a they've split up, and b the only person who's got helping her is her brother Orhan, who is a tough Turkish counterintelligence cop who hates all foreigners, and in particular any foreigners who've been sleeping with his sister. So these two mismatched guys have to chase around Istanbul and find uh, Elif, the missing archaeology professor, and try and find this object and also figure out what the hell's going on. And in the course of the novel, bombs go off, a terrible danger looms over Istanbul, and we see quite a bit of the interior workings of the Foreign Office, how it all works in real life when a crisis is on. So it's a it's a great package, I must say. Fantastic. Uh- you know, one of the very first things anyone will tell you about writing, whether it's novels or screenplays, which is very much de rigueur over here in Los Angeles, is is write what you know. Um, so when you first started writing, presumably your first attempt at it, it was writing what you know in terms of setting it in either cities you've served in or the foreign office in which you work. That's a really good piece of advice. Actually, the, the first novel I wrote was called Eternal Life. I wrote it back in the 80s and didn't actually publish it until a couple of years ago. And it's a science fiction uh, comedy thriller, a bit in the spirit of Philip K. Dick. If you know about Philip K. Dick, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep and all that stuff. Very filmic, actually. And um, I wrote that and then I went to Moscow. I was second secretary no, first secretary economic in Moscow. And I met a fellow writer, Ruth Dudley Edwards. And I mentioned to her, she was make, she was writing a, a, an excellent book called True Brits, which was about diplomats working in the British Foreign Office. And she came to Moscow to, in, to interview us. And uh, amongst those she interviewed was me. And I mentioned I like to write books. And she said exactly that. She said, write about what you know. And so I did. I I wrote a thriller set in Moscow in the early 90s uh, amidst the chaos and corruption 
of early 1990s Moscow. Uh, it was called The Skip Outside the Lenin Museum. And that title was prompted because I used to walk to work past the Lenin Museum. And one day I was walking past it and they literally had a skip outside full of all the exhibits. I mean, a more, a more symbolic site in 1990s Russia would be hard to imagine. Um, and I imagined what else there might be in that skip. And I imagined a dead body lying in this skip you now that has been cleared out of the museum. And that uh, prompted me to write that book. It was never published, but actually some of the characters in that book do surface in some of my other books, including my Berlin thriller, which is called uh, Blood Summit, has a has a Georgian, a shady Georgian businessman with two fearsome bodyguards called uh, Alieg Sukhanashvili. And he actually was in that old book 20 years ago, and now he pops up in a new book, and uh, it's great to see him there. Because I think, I, I mean, as you said at the beginning, everyone's got a book in them, and it is best that some people don't ever get it out. Um, I had always wanted to write a book and I'd started, I think, three different books at different times in my career. You know, when I was a sports journal, well, when I was a, I was a beer columnist for a paper in Yorkshire and I started very writing a book. Very important job. Particularly in Yorkshire it was. And I started writing a book and then I changed jobs and I never finished it. And this happened to me a couple of times when I did other jobs in other places. And then when I moved to LA, I thought the thing to do is write a screenplay so i wrote a screenplay called the consulate um and ah. it's a tv series about and again it's write what you know and as part of that process before i shipped it around so i had to get clearance because although i had just left it's still you know as part of the job you have to get clearance so presumably you went down that road as well and obviously you were in much more senior jobs than me what was the process of trying to persuade your current at that stage employer of letting you write books because that feels like the old version of the foreign office wouldn't possibly allow a man to do that sort of thing ha. well people have been writing books for a long time and of course Douglas Hurd the former foreign minister was foreign secretary was quite well known as a novelist and other people have also written thrillers and there's quite a well-trodden path to getting your books cleared. And I've cleared several of my books with the Foreign Office. Uh, they've occasionally asked me to change a few details uh, in case they feel that I've revealed the existence of an intelligence organization that's not acknowledged, for example, or uh, if they say I've implied something that they don't want to come out too clearly. The, the tricky thing sometimes is that in this modern age of social media, where the news moves so quickly, I think the Foreign Office, or the FCDO as it's now become, sometimes is a little bit oversensitive and a bit neuralgic about the risks. They've been burned by the activities of one or two of our, of our colleagues in the past who perhaps have gone a bit further than was reasonable. So um, what I found, one, on one occasion, I, I cleared a novel uh, and it was passed and they said, that's fine. And then when I started publishing it, they said, well, hang on a minute, um, this could bring the Foreign Office into disrepute. So it wasn't the Official Secrets Act, it was bringing the Foreign Office into disrepute. And of course, that's an entirely subjective judgment, whether or not something will bring the Foreign Office into disrepute. As far as I was concerned, that book, uh, which will be published soon, I hope, um, is a fantastic advert for the Foreign Office, because it shows people who work in the Foreign Office as being human beings, you know, as having the normal loves and lives of other people who aren't diplomats, and it completely washes away that old stereotype of stiff upper lip and bowler hats and rather boring blokes uh, with grey hair who are diplomats. You know, it's got a very lively and diverse range of people in it. So 
it's it is a bit of a work in progress, I would say, and um, I can understand it from a point of view of the Foreign Office. You know, they don't want people giving away our secrets. They don't want people to write frivolous stuff. On the other hand, they don't want to censor people either. And um, I felt I was censored a bit with one of my books. So obviously, you're you're now out. Um, so does. But that doesn't mean you're entirely clear. You still have to clear things as a former diplomat. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I mean, I'm always very keen to stick to the rules. And I, uh, you know, I honour the Foreign Office as having been a great employer for many years. And um, so I still have to clear it for official secrets. So I send it off to uh, somebody I know in the Foreign Office. They read it. Um, if necessary, they consult other government departments. Then they say, usually, that's okay. Um what doesn't apply anymore is bringing the foreign office into disrepute because whereas when you're working there, you have to toe the government line, you're obviously never going to say you disagree with ministers and so on. Um, when you leave, you can be much more flexible about that and you can say what you really think. And uh, in the case of, for example, I've got, a, I've got a new book coming out next year, which is called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Diplomacy. And it will be a very rich tapestry of my experiences in the Foreign Office and what conclusions um, both diplomats and non-diplomats can draw from that about life. And I will have to clear that, of course, with the Foreign Office. But um, if I say, for example, as I do, that uh, I had to argue in favour of Brexit, even though I thought it was a very bad idea, um, then I can say that now, whereas I, I wouldn't have wanted to say that as a serving diplomat. Yeah, I, actually, as, since I've left, that's something I say quite a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because there are a small handful of diplomats who have fascinating external activities. So um, I think there was, I think it was a lady who worked for us in Japan who was a, a an Olympian on the side. Um, there was a chap who served in Australia who was a stand-up comedian on the side. Yeah. Um, obviously, you you're well known. I mean, even you know when I was a colleague of yours, um, you were well known as a writer. And in terms of even though you hadn't published the books yet, you know you write the blogs and so on. And that was yeah. something that was was seen. I think I I started podcasting only after I left because I wouldn't have had the freedom to. You know, drink whiskey at ten o'clock in the morning as I'm doing now, probably. Um, and <laughs> not, some of the other not every day, not every day anyway, right? Not every day, no, indeed. Um, so I think it, it's it's great that there's this side of diplomats. I don't think people expect or normally see. They think they're very sort sure. of old-fashioned, straight, stiff up a lip British. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are all these stereotypes, and uh, you know, James Bond himself is a stereotype. If you read the books, as I as I do, he's a terrible homophobic, misogynistic bastard, basically, in the books. Um, luckily, he's been a bit modernised in the latest movies. Um, and then you have the the sort of uh, Carruthers of, of, of the Foreign Office, who we imagine as being uh, a very stereotypical diplomat. And most, most Foreign Office diplomats are perfectly normal men and women, you know, reflecting British society, much more so than they used to. Actually, they've made real progress in the last uh, 20 years or so in getting a more diverse workforce. And I think that story needs to be told. So one of the characters in my in my book, Palladium, for example, my Istanbul thriller that's just come out is um, Ram Kuresh, who is um, uh, MI6's first avowedly gay um, head of office who has a... Um, 
who has an ethnic uh, Indian background. And he's a great character, you know, and he's uh, extremely brilliant and so on. And I think it's important that you can you can do those things and you can show that the places become more diverse. That the, the hero of my book, Blood Summit, is um, a woman who's in charge of counter-terrorist operations. And it also features a woman SAS officer. Um, and in my work on counter-terrorism, which I did um, back in the 80s and 90s, I saw a lot of senior women figures in the military. I saw a lot of senior um, uh, ethnic minority officers in all kinds of branches of uh, the Foreign Office and elsewhere. And, you know, that story needs to be told, I think. I remember actually when, when I was Director of Overseas Territories, um, I was, amongst other things, the Commissioner for the British Indian Ocean Territory, which includes Diego Garcia. And we had regular talks with um, the Americans about what was going on there. And my opposite number for one of these things was a, a brigadier, Lynn Sherlock, who was actually a former bomber pilot. She'd flown B-52s. And, uh, you know, I've never met a female B-52 pilot before, and uh, she, she definitely deserves a place in the novel. Yeah, I think it's it, because obviously um, you're not the first diplomat to write these sort of thrillers. And John le Carre was famously, he worked for the Brits in, in Bonn um, yeah. before going off to write. But I think his books are, are the old version of the Foreign Office because it was the old version of the world in those days. So it's yeah. it's interesting that you're 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 showing the modern version of, of the Foreign Office. Yeah, that's that's important to me. I, I I think John le Carre, of course, is a much better writer than I am. But, uh, you know, back, back in the day, in the 60s and 70s, uh, maybe 80s, he wrote absolutely outstanding Cold War thrillers, which I think have no... You know, there's no one writes better thrillers than John McCarry. As time went on, I, I can say this because he's died now, may rest in peace, but um, you know, his later books were all full of these sort of frustrated upper-class men um, bridling over women taking positions of power or oppressing them. You know, and it was still a kind of 60s or 70s world, and the foreign officers moved on. Um I mean, spying has moved on from what uh, what little I've seen of it from the sidelines, as it were. And um, I think uh, Palladium certainly shows a much more foreign office, uh, much much more diverse foreign office, um, and also a much more fun foreign office. I think the idea that everybody's sitting around being very dismal is completely wrong. Even in a crisis, there's a, there's a great um, in, in Palladium, there's basically there are bombs going off all over the city, and so they set up a crisis unit inside the consulate, and um, they're trying to keep track. They're trying to find: have any Brits been injured? You probably you've experienced this yourself when there's been a crisis in the consulate. And um, but they're not all panicking. You know, there's a woman in charge, actually the deputy head of mission, who arrives with a cup of tea and a laptop under her arm and takes control. You know, and that's that's how things are done these days. It's not going to be some white-haired bloke in a in a three-piece suit. Or there is a white-haired bloke in a three-piece suit, suit, but he gets overheated and has to go off and cool down. <laughs> the, uh, the whole sort of crisis. I remember. I think I, I can tell the story because it's not very that exciting. But I remember we did a crisis exercise when I was in London, um, and it was it was when I was working for the Department for Transport, and we were simulating yep. what happens if there's a, a blackout across the whole country. Um, so we're in the crisis room, going through the scenarios where you know the trains have all stopped and all that sort of stuff, as you do to prepare for what yeah. could legitimately happen. And I remember I was I was manning one of the desks, and a call came in saying a, a 
train had uh, an underground train had derailed. I think it was at Whitechapel Station, and um, we got on the. I passed it around, and everyone said, "No, that can't work because the tubes aren't running. They haven't been running for a few hours." And then we realised it, it was a real one, and it, it, it was, it was a real not, one. Ah. Yeah, it was just one. They were just moving some trains around, and it derailed, and they had to tell us, and then we had to stop the whole exercise to deal with this real train. But there was this: if you were writing a, a sketch, it was this farcical thing where somebody was dealing with a real problem and we were refusing to accept it because we were two days into a, a scenario and there was actually quite a lot of fun to be had and I think there is something about explaining some of that to people. Um, well yeah I mean when, when you're um, involved in crisis planning as I've, I've done a lot of real crises in, in Turkey in particular we had a lot of uh, I'm afraid genuine bombs going off and of course Istanbul was the subject of the biggest attack on the foreign office back in 2003 when 12 people were killed in the consulate very tragically uh, in a bomb attack. But, um, you know, when you're preparing for um, the worst, you tend to get these very dire crisis scenarios. I remember one we had in Istanbul where there was an earthquake and then a plane crashed, uh, you know, the same day and we were trying to cope with that. Um, but it all it all comes good when you actually are faced with a crisis, um, and and you all know what to do. And we we had that in 2013 in in Turkey, for example, when we had the Gezi Park protests, and some tens of thousands of demonstrators came past the consulate, which was in the centre of town, and tore off all our TV CCTV cameras, which caused the electricity and the phones to go down, and the area was much vandalised, and then clouds of tear gas covered the entire area and we saw the riot police in action against the demonstrators all around the the consulate and an experience like that means that you have to be well prepared for a genuine crisis and in that case we we opened up the consulate at a um, our secondary location good opportunity to test it out get all the computers up and running a place about 10 miles away that was safe um, and then, of course, I can't rule out that some of what I saw that day in terms of how the Turkish police authorities responded to a ma major public disorder, um, how that uh, fed into my novel Palladium, in which one of the things that happens is there's a, there are two huge demonstrations which gather at Taksim Square ready to attack one another. And, um, you know, the leftists and the rightists, as is often the case in Turkey. And, um, well, what happens then, you'll have to read the book and find out. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, I think the double crisis is, is standard for the training manual. I remember when we were in L.A., our big thing was earthquakes. So we did a big training exercise around an earthquake. And then just to make it more fun, a plane, didn't, a plane didn't crash, but a plane landed from Britain and half the people on it had Ebola. Um, which before before COVID was the thing you worried about in terms of yep. communicable diseases, and we had to manage that. Um, so I think that's yes from the playbook. Now let's just talk. So obviously you've you've served in Istanbul and written about Istanbul. You also served in Russia and were our man in Ukraine. And you actually one of your earlier novels was about Russia and Ukraine and Crimea. Which yeah, so tell us yeah. a bit about what happened with that. Well, it's it's one of those um, difficult things. I, w I was in um, Ukraine as ambassador from 2008 to 2012, so my first ambassador job, and uh, lovely people, the Ukrainians. I mean, the Russians are lovely people too. I, I served in Moscow from 1992 to 1995. Um, 
But whereas um, Russia, since the turn of the millennium, has been governed in an increasingly authoritarian way, the Ukrainians are rejoicing in the um, variety of their democracy. So it's an extremely democratic place with very nice people living there. And I traveled all over the country, including to Crimea many times, and also to the far east of Ukraine, to Luhansk and Donetsk, the two areas that uh, have been occupied by Russia since 2014. And it was very striking that um, even in Luhansk and Donetsk, where there's a majority of Russian speakers, um, Luhansk and Donetsk both voted uh, 83.9% in uh, 1991 for an independent Ukraine. And even in Crimea, the um, party of which the now prime minister of Crimea um, was the head, he was obviously installed by Russia after the invasion of 2014, his party got 4% in the last democratic vote in 2010. And I never met anybody in any of those places who wanted to be part of Russia. Um, and it was clear then, because we had the Russia-Georgia War of 2008, which really caused shockwaves across Europe, but unfortunately not big enough shockwaves. Um, it was clear then that Crimea was a potential source of tension between Russia and Ukraine. And so I wrote a, a novel featuring John Savage, actually, this, um, this MI6 guy who's been thrown out for gross insubordination in Moscow. Um, he turns up in, um, in Kiev at the beginning of the book, um, traumatized from his experience, and he's had five years of uh, psychotherapy. And he comes back as an, or, as an ordinary member of the Foreign Office to work in, in, uh, in Kiev. Mm -hmm. And he can see that there's some very weird things going on uh, in a state of tension between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, over Crimea. The Russians are threatening to invade Crimea. I wrote this in 2009, 2010, and it was ready for publication in 2011. Um, but I couldn't sell it. No, nobody wanted to read this book. Um, and um, uh, my Ukrainian friends, who, to whom I showed the book back in 2010, 2011, they said, oh, don't know about this. They said, um, there's a sympathetic Russian guy in this. That can't be right. Um, and uh, there's actually there's an actual FSB guy who seems to be a bad guy, but uh, FSB is the, the, the Russian security agency. Um, he seems to be a bad guy, but actually is a good guy. And they said, oh, no, that can't have that. Um, and maybe they were right, actually. Maybe I was lucky I didn't get it published because uh, I would have had a sympathetic Russian guy in my novel and nobody would want to buy it now. Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, while we're on, I think we can't not, I can't not ask you a Ukraine question. Yeah, um, sure. Because um, I think, how surprised are you about what has happened with this latest invasion? Um, and how do you think this all will play out? So back in 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine the first time and went into Crimea and into eastern Ukraine, many Russian experts, and I, 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 I'm not a, the world's greatest Russian expert, but I know something about it, Many Russian experts didn't expect that because they thought, first of all, that the Russian military and the Russian establishment would not want a war where they started killing fellow Slavs. And Ukrainians and Russians traditionally have been quite friendly towards one another. So that was the first reason we thought we wouldn't happen and this, it wouldn't happen. And the second reason was that 
we could only see that it would end badly, not only for Ukraine, but also for Russia. I remember having a an argument at the time with a Russian friend of mine, and I was saying back in 2014, look, this is going to be disastrous for Russia because Ukraine from now on will never want to be your friend. They'll turn west. They'll become more Western orientated. Russia itself will suffer sanctions and isolation, and it'll go badly for you. And this Russian friend of mine said, yeah, but it'll be worse for the Ukrainians, he said back in 2014. In fact, what we've seen since 2014 is that Russian GDP per capita, so that's how how rich individual Russians are in nominal terms, has fallen by 37%. That was before the invasion of 2022. So the first invasion really screwed up Russia. And that's one of the reasons that Putin was becoming more unpopular before he launched the invasion in, in February 2022 again. Now we're in a situation where, again, logic would suggest that the Russians really shouldn't be invading, shouldn't be invading Ukraine because it's a huge operation to invade Ukraine. It's very bloody. The recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, where the Azerbaijanis or the Azeris unexpectedly completely destroyed the Armenian armed forces using drones, showed that modern warfare is very unpredictable. So it was a huge gamble, as well as being an, an aggressive and illegal act by Putin to invade Ukraine. So we all thought, surely he won't do it. But he did do it. And, and, and the important thing to remember is that this war is nothing to do with any of the reasons that Mr. Putin explains. It's nothing to do with NATO. It's nothing to do with ha-ha, Ukraine being a threat to Russia. Uh, no, there aren't any fascists in Ukraine any more than the Berlin Wall was built as an anti-fascist protection wall back in 1961. It's all about keeping Vladimir Putin in power because he is terrified that democracy will wash over from Ukraine into Russia, as we saw in 2011 to 2013, when there were big anti-Putin uh, protests in Russia itself after falsified elections. And that was the point, 2013, when Putin suddenly realized that democracy in Ukraine could be very dangerous for him, and he reversed position on it. And since then, they've been very hostile towards Ukraine. Now, what's going to happen next? Um, very difficult to predict the future, of course, always. I fear we're in for more bloody fighting, which, of course, is catastrophic for Ukraine and a pretty big disaster for Russia, too. I can't see that the Ukrainian government can settle for any outcome which leaves Russia occupying more territory than they had at the beginning of the war. And I can't see how Putin, whose war this really is, can accept controlling anything less, anything as little as what he had at the beginning of the war. So it's very difficult to see a negotiated solution. And it's possible one side or the other may collapse militarily. Um, possibly the Russians could have a breakthrough, or possibly the Ukrainians could have a breakthrough if the Russian armed forces lose the will to fight. Um, but I do think it's a, it's the right thing to do to keep supporting Ukraine militarily uh, in order to prevent more massacres and human rights abuses of the type that we have already seen. Yeah, thank you, Lee, for that for that insight. So I guess a, a question of personal motivation. 
Um, there's obviously different types of diplomats, and I've I've served in, and I served in Germany and in Los Angeles, and so it's there's a lot of sort of cultural diplomacy, and obviously in Germany there was a lot of politics, but there was also a lot of sort of soft power diplomacy. But there's obviously colleagues of mine, uh, and obviously people like yourself who have been in places where it, you know it's not just about whiskey tasting and commercial um it's, it's deep politics and geopolitical movements and you're there or responding to crises um is there a obviously you were you were our man in ukraine is there a part of you that wishes in a maybe a slightly perverse way that you were in that job now while this is happening just because of why you do these jobs and what you can do to make a difference. I, I do admire ambassadors and heads of mission who go through real crises. Uh, I mean, I think Melissa Simmons in um, in Kiev and her team, her whole embassy team, have been doing terrific work during this crisis. I remember when we had the um, the Russia-Ukraine crisis over Crimea back in 2014. I went back from Istanbul, where I was then posted, to the Foreign Office in London to help run the crisis unit. And at that point, we had um, Tim Barrow was ambassador in Moscow, and um, we had Simon Smith, I think, was ambassador in, uh, in, in Kiev. And they had really difficult crises to deal with. I do, I mean, it's a, it's a funny um, paradox, isn't it, that most people like to take it easy and to enjoy life. At the same time, the bigger the crisis you face, the more satisfying it is when you are past it or when you can help resolve it. And for me, the uh, helping to run the crisis unit back in 2014 was one of the most difficult uh, things I, I ever did. And similarly, being in, uh, in Istanbul when there was a crisis on there, we had several crises, uh, unfortunately, um, was also very demanding and rewarding. Even, even Brexit, where um, I spent five years in um, Vienna arguing the case on behalf of the British government for Brexit um, uh, in as professional a way as I could, choosing my words carefully so I didn't feel I was, um, you know, not, I, I was saying anything that I, I, I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, and that, that itself, the intensity of Brexit meant that my job became more interesting. It was more challenging, certainly. I had more access to senior decision makers. I had more access to the media. Everybody wanted to hear, why on earth is Britain doing this weird thing to itself? You know, how, how can you justify that? Here's a guy who's ready to do it, and in German too. Um, so um, all of that meant, you're right, that um, a time of crisis, as well as being a challenge and very difficult, can also be a very um, rewarding time to be a diplomat. I, I don't, looking back on it now, you know, I've, I've, I retired eight months ago and um, I, uh, I admire people who are doing it. I don't feel I want to be back there. I, I want to get my books published um, without too much inf interference uh, from the Foreign Office. And um, I want to make sure that uh, uh, I can do the things I want to do. And that, that actually has included doing a lot of interviews about Ukraine. Somebody has found out that I know something about Ukraine, so I've I've been doing lots of interviews. And again, um, you know, I don't say anything that the Foreign Office would really disagree with, um, but I, I find that quite enjoyable. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, as we move back into this entertainment stuff, so actually in the, I want to talk about your books, but just but the, mm. the the main character in my pilot that I wrote was a British diplomat who was addicted to crises and was upset, yeah. upset about being posted to Los Angeles because there was no crises here. Um, and, you know, it was, it was uh, as all characters in books often are, it was an amalgamation of a few different colleagues who I had met who sort of wanted the crises because actually, as you say, it's, you know, no one wants to see people hurt and so on. But as you say, professionally, if it's your job to work under these, you know, you're trained to do this, you you want to be able to do it and make a difference. And, and there is, as you say, that professional satisfaction afterwards. It's, it's very true. It's very true. I've actually been acting as a consultant to one or two um, productions in um, on Netflix and um, elsewhere. I can't talk about them because of... Um, uh, they get you to sign this non-disclosure agreement. But um, I've been very struck by the fact that some uh, series, such as uh, Homelands, have bits that are very realistic and bits that are very unrealistic. And it, it makes me cringe when I see them, or The West Wing or um, Berlin Station. You know, they're, they're, I, I know that I've, I've got to know some of the advisors who worked on those, who are highly professional um, but of course, the, the makers of the programs don't always listen to them, and no. um, and I've, I've been involved just recently in a, in an upcoming um, uh, Netflix series, um, uh, giving them the benefits of my advice, and it is quite helpful. I mean, for example, I, I recently read um, a great thriller called um, I Am Pilgrim by a guy called Ter- Terry Hayes, and in it, there's a, a female Turkish police officer who's like a wimp. And doesn't know how to use her pistol, you know. And anybody who's been to Turkey can tell you that Turkey women, female Turkish police officers, are not wimps, and they are excellent with their with their firearms. So, you know, I could have told him that. And uh, if any of your listeners um, want to um, have some advice from a, a, a genuine diplomat who knows what really happens in a crisis and has done plenty of counterterrorism work and crisis work, I'm uh, I'm available. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because I think, and this applies in Hollywood to a lot of things. You know, there's. Uh, I remember a friend of mine wrote on a on a big uh, hospital drama, and when they wrote the scripts, they would, you know, character walks in, you know, hello, medical, 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 and that's what they literally write in the script. Um, and then they get a doctor to come in and say, you know, this person's got sarcoidosis and fills it in. Um, but it's always about having a consultant who can tell them how it should work, and then yeah. creatively they decide whether they want to stick to that or if they want to not stick to that. But at least they know what they're – they like to know the rules before they break them because sometimes that's right. the that's way right. it really works just doesn't work dramatically. Um, no, that's a very good point. I mean, this, um, I mean, uh, at the moment, I've just actually signed a contract with an agent to try and sell the rights to Blood Summit, which um, is a very filmic book set around a siege in the Reichstag. Um, of uh, where the US president is amongst the hostages inside an impregnable building. It's a bit like um, there's, a, there's a series called Money Heist uh, based in Spain uh, or Casa de Papel, its original name is. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. And then for um, Palladium, again, it's a, it's a wide sweeping book with geopolitical crises just around the corner and uh, a lot of interests affected. And I think, you know, I have hopes for Hollywood. And actually, I should mention um, 
I, uh, I've also written a book called Seven Hotel Stories, which is a series of short stories based on the fact that my partner is actually a hotel general manager. And she tells me the incredible things that happen in hotels. I mean, you would not believe it. And so um, I've written these short stories and they have a lovely cast of characters. And a couple of people, including my, my contact at Netflix, has said, these look rather interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we might see, manage to turn those into some kind of drama. Fantastic. Yeah, I had, I had a hotel manager, a friend of mine on this podcast, and he told me some, I mean, there's a lot he couldn't tell me, but there was a lot of extraordinary, yeah. just because, you know, if you come across that many people for a short period of time, you know, yeah. humans being humans, amazing things happen. So actually, yeah. just into the rule-breaking thing, when you wrote your book, obviously, you know, you, you know how it works. Did you have to break any rules, as it were, for dramatic effect. So in your novels, did you have to short-circuit some processes and um, sort of change how it really works in order to keep the dramatic pace required for your novel? Or did, like a good British diplomat, did you stick to the rules completely? Uh, I'd say most of the time they're pretty accurate, my novels. Uh the palladium happens over a, one day. So what we see in real crises, such as 9-11, if you, if you haven't read the 9-11 Commission Report, I advise you to read it. It's a great, really interesting read. But when governments have to make decisions very quickly in the middle of a life and death, death crisis, they often come apart at the seams. And that's what happens in, in palladium, and it's what happens uh, in Blood Summit that people are trying to make decisions with the best resources they have, um, and they find it difficult. I mean, in Blood Summit, all the um, all the world's leaders, plus the whole German government, are inside the Reichstag taken hostage, and they're trying to make decisions about whether to launch an attack, and the defence minister is one of the hostages. In fact, she's been shot quite early. Um, and um, so I think that that chaos is actually quite realistic. And sure, you know, sometimes people do things that they probably wouldn't do, um, you know, how many first secretaries would really do what Helen Gale does in, in Blood Summit or how many um, uh, people working on organized crime like John Savage in Palladium, you know, he actually disobeys his, command, his, uh, his consul general and goes off to try and solve the crisis and work out what's happening. And uh, of course, I would never have done that. I would have obeyed my um, my instructions at all time, but uh, that wouldn't have had such such good drama in it. Yeah, absolutely, fantastic. This has been fascinating. Lee. I, this is the sort of uh, discussion that I think we could definitely continue on and on. But unfortunately, that's not unlike novels. There is a little bit more of a time limit on podcasts. Um, right. So before we draw to a conclusion, and I ask the final question. So I do want to say, if you continue to write these books. I'd be really interesting to get you back on in a year or two's time to talk about more of your books and more of your life as a writer post diplomatic career. Um, sure. Because I think it's such a rich seam for, for discussion, but we do have to ask the final question, which we ask every guest, which is if you could drink any whiskey with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? What would it be? And where would it be? Mm. Well, uh, it's always a tricky question where you would, uh, who you would choose amongst all the famous people alive or dead. And there's definitely a trend. I've seen many people answer this question. There's definitely a trend to long dead film stars, usually of the opposite gender to whoever it is. 
so women say, oh, well, it would be Cary Grant, you know, and the, and the men say, well, Jaja Gabor or uh, Claudette Colbert. Um, I mean, in my case, I, I've found a lot of the politicians I've come into contact with have been extremely charming. And um, I must say, I have a lot of time for Her Majesty the Queen, who I've been lucky enough to meet on a number of occasions. And um, she's she's got a nice little sense of humour. She's incredibly stoic, gets on with what she has to do, and um, an, an enormous sense of duty. And if um, I could get her to let her hair down and have a, a nice dram of whiskey with me, um, probably I would go for... Um, some nice bush mills. I've always had a soft spot for bush mills, Northern Irish whiskey. Um, uh, I don't know what she would be drinking. Um, I'm sure she has a favourite. And just talk about some of the extraordinary experiences that she's had. That would be an enormous privilege. So that would be my choice. So the Queen, who we've not yet had as a as after 88 of these episodes, bush mills, which you've not had either. Um, and where would you have this whiskey? Well, I think. I would be very tempted to see if the Queen would be kind enough to invite me to one of her less common residences. You know, so it might be up at uh, Holyrood in in Edinburgh, or it might be one of the minor houses that they have scattered around the country in remote parts of Scotland. Um, any of those would do me nicely. I, what I envisage is a roaring log fire. Um, some whiskey with a bit of ice in it for me. I'm, I'm not a purist on these things. And um, perhaps a, a storm raging outside would be ideal. And she would say, look, Lee, I've been looking at your amazing rleeturner.com website. How do you find time to do that? Um, how do you make it so fascinating? And by the way, your, your favorite, my favorite one of your books is Palladium or Blood Summit, she would say. Or perhaps she'd say the hotel stories because they're, they're wonderful, feminist, and dark, and I think she has a feminist side to her, the Queen. <laughs> Fantastic answer. So, Lee Turner, diplomat turned novelist, thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Great. Thanks very much for the invitation, and good luck. Mm, I love scotch. 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 And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>